0: Hello, and welcome to Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects. This is Episode 5, What Are Gene Drives and How Do They Work? I'm Raven, Forrest Fruscalzo, your host. First off, I want to tell you about a great podcast that I've been listening to for a while now. When I started attending Notre Dame, I didn't know much about Catholicism, but I wanted to learn. So I started listening to the History of the Papacy podcast. Whether you're interested in European history or the religions of the world, it's really very interesting. The host, Steve, helped me out a lot when I was setting up Tiny Vampires, which really meant a lot. After some interaction with some of you guys, I've noticed that people are more willing to suggest particular topics than asking specific questions. So from now on, I'm going to switch to a topic suggestion model instead of having you guys ask specific questions. If you do have a specific question, feel free to email it to me, post it on the Facebook page, or on the website. So, now on to the science. Jennifer Praner posted on the Facebook page that she's trying to figure out what a gene drive is. This is a pretty complicated topic, so we're likely going to go a little bit longer than normal. Even so, I'm still going to gloss over a lot of details. So, be sure to check out the show notes of the blog for this one, because I'll be posting on there, a lot of really interesting things I just won't have the time to cover. Oftentimes, we talk about genetically modified organisms as if there is only one way to alter the genes in an organism, but in actuality, there are many ways. There are low-tech methods, such as long-term selective breeding programs and irradiation, as well as high-tech methods, such as conventional genetic modification and gene drives. Before we get into modifying genes, let's go over a biology refresher and talk about what a gene is. We hear all the time that DNA is a blueprint or instructions for life. But what do people actually mean when they say this? Let's stick to the building analogy. First, what is DNA actually for? We know that it's a set of coded instructions. But how does this code turn into a whole mosquito or a person, or a virus. Picture a book of instructions, like the ones that you might get for building a deck that you bought at Home Depot. But this book is huge. Thousands and thousands of pages. It is time to build the stairs. So you don't need the whole book. You just need the few pages that are about stairs. You jot down the instructions from just these few pages onto some smaller sheets of paper that you can work with more easily. Now you have the instructions, but you don't build the deck out of the instructions, you build it out of wood, based on those instructions. This is pretty much how DNA works in our bodies. The amount of DNA that makes up our chromosomes is huge. Millions and millions of A's, T's, G's, and C's, or bases, that are making up this code. The chromosome is the giant book, and the DNA is the long instructions. RNA copies or transcribes a much smaller portion of the DNA that is the instructions for something specific, just like how we copied the instructions for just the stairs. These portions of the code for a specific thing is what we talk about when we say a gene. The coded instructions carried by the RNA is then translated into a series of amino acids, In the analogy, the amino acids are the wood that make up the stairs. Once these amino acids are put together in the right order, and the right configuration, they form the desired protein. Just as, the pieces of wood only form stairs if they are put together in the right configuration. These proteins then go around inside and outside the cell doing their job, like chopping up viruses or sending signals to other cells. During one type of conventional gene modification, a section of DNA that the genetic engineers want to be in the organism is inserted into the DNA, either replacing a gene that's already there, blocking a gene that's already there, or being added to the instructions. There are a few different ways of doing this. For example, taking a protein that cuts DNA and a protein that inserts a short strand of new DNA into the longer old strand. If you inserted a malaria prevention gene into a young mosquito, they would grow up with these malaria prevention genes in every cell. The insect can pass down these modifications because this method does not make them sterile. If we release them into the wild, what would happen? Likely not much, The genetically modified mother would find a mate in a wild male, because there are many, many more wild males than there are genetically modified males. Like us, mosquitoes get two copies of every gene, one from their mother and one from their father. So the female would contribute one of her two genetically modified chromosomes to their larvae, and the father would contribute a non-genetically modified chromosome this means that the number of modified genes in each mosquito was just cut in half. Now these offspring grow up and have young of their own, with more unmodified mates, diluting the modification in half again. So now only half of the mosquitoes have a modified gene and only in one of their chromosomes. This happens again and again, and the mosquitoes Continue to transmit malaria to children, many of whom die. Another way of thinking about this is if you think of the female as a blue mosquito and the males that are not genetically modified as red mosquitoes. Their offspring would be purple. The offspring would then mate with red mosquitoes and the population as a whole, would be more and more red, until almost no blue was left. Now we get to the heart of the question. Gene drives start off in the same way as traditional gene modification. But the people who invented gene drives found a clever way to fix the genetic modification problem. They knew that the tools that they needed to cut the old gene and put in the new genes were proteins and they knew how to have the cells make a protein. So, if they not only put the genes in the mosquitoes to keep them from transmitting malaria, but also put the DNA code in for the proteins that made the cut and the insertion, then, instead of the anti-malarial gene being drowned out, they would end up drowning out the old genes. Here's how. We start off with the same genetically modified female as before, except this time she has gene drives as well. When she mates with a wild male, she produces offspring just as before, with one genetically modified chromosome and the other wild. But this time, they don't stay that way. The proteins that cut the old genes out and insert new ones in go to work and modify the offspring's chromosomes that came from its father. This precise cutting and pasting system is called CRISPR-Cas9. Now, just like the mother, all of the young have two modified chromosomes. When these offspring grow up and mate, the cycle starts again. These genes are not just passengers on the chromosomes, but are actively driving themselves into the population, which is how they got their name. Getting back to our blue genetically modified mosquito, red wild mosquito idea. Because the female's blue chromosome is a gene-drive chromosome, her offspring start off purple, but quickly turn blue as the red chromosome is modified into a blue one. These offspring mate with more red mosquitoes, but the population as a whole becomes more and more blue because every purple mosquito is modified into being a blue one. All of the blue mosquitoes can't carry malaria, and so the number of malaria-carrying mosquitoes drops and drops until the disease is no longer being transmitted. You might have already noticed that these gene-drive mosquitoes would be much different than the Oxitec mosquitoes that we talked about in episode 3. The goal of the Oxitec genetically modified mosquitoes was to stop the mosquitoes from successfully breeding. This means that the genetically modified mosquitoes they intend to release are only males, so will not bite humans. They die after mating, and their young do not survive to adulthood. The genetic modifications are therefore not self-sustaining new crops of genetically modified males must be constantly produced and put out into the wild. With gene-drive mosquitoes, their goal is to replace the wild population with a genetically modified one. Both males and females are released into the wild, with the modification self-sustaining, meaning that after their release and successfully joining into the community, no more human intervention is needed. Now that we have some background in place, let's talk about the very cool paper I found about gene drives. The research was conducted by Gantz et al. and is called Highly Efficient Cas9-Mediated Gene Drive for Population Modification of the Malaria Vector Mosquito Anopheles Stephensi that was published in 2015. One of the reasons this paper is so interesting is because even though the technology is quite advanced, the logic behind it is pretty straightforward. Starting with the vector. We haven't talked about Anopheles eye yet on tiny vampires. Like the name suggests, it's related to Anopheles gambiae, which we talked about in last episode. Both of these mosquitoes transmit the deadliest form of the malaria parasite, called Plasmodium falciparum. Stevens Eye is especially bad in places like India. One of the reasons the Gantz group decided to work with Stevens Eye is that it cannot live in the part of California where the experiments were conducted. Even though the mosquitoes were raised inside, behind multiple doors, they wanted to make sure that if they did get out, they wouldn't be able to survive and breed, thus spreading the gene drive system. The Gantz group knew that like most parasites, malaria is actually really picky about which animal it lives in. That is why humans don't get mouse or bird malaria and why mice can't get human malaria. So they looked to see what immune molecules or antibodies the mice were creating that was capable of fighting off human malaria. Once they found the mouse antibody, they used the CRISPR-Cas9 system to insert the genetic code for the mouse antibody into the mosquito's DNA. They weren't sure if it would work because the total number of bases, that's the A's, T's, G's, and C's, they needed to insert was around 17,000 when they added the CRISPR-Cas9 proteins and the antibody proteins. Even though it was very large, they tried it and it worked. When these antibodies are produced in the mosquitoes and in which mosquitoes they were produced in, was very cleverly controlled by attaching it to genes that are only expressed when the female feeds on blood. The males will never get malaria because they don't drink blood. So even though the researchers needed the males to pass on the antibody genes, they didn't need them to express them. And by express, I mean actually make those proteins in their bodies. Females only need to fight off the parasites when they encounter it, which would be only when they bite. The next step was to test to see if the mosquitoes could effectively pass this antibody and gene drive system down to their offspring. Just like the Oxitec mosquitoes we talked about before, the researchers needed a way of telling if the genes were inserted just by looking at the mosquitoes. In this case, because they could control exactly where in the chromosome the genes would be inserted, they placed them in the gene that controls for the mosquito's eye color. This way, if the mosquito's eyes were white, it would mean that the genes were inserted in such a way that they interrupted the creation of the mosquito's eye pigment proteins. And they would be black if the gene insertion didn't work, because that eye pigment protein wasn't being interrupted. Doing all of this, they discovered that the gene drive was very efficient. When a mosquito had one wild chromosome and one modified chromosome, more than 98% of the time, the gene drive would modify the wild chromosome. Gantz et al.'s work was funded by the National Institute of Health and private grants like the W. M. Keck Foundation. What all this comes down to is that we currently have a very effective, self-sustaining means of combating malaria, but it is not being used. This is for a good reason. This technology might make you feel a little bit, or a lot, uneasy, but you aren't the only one. Even though it's likely that the release of gene drive organisms into the wild is many, many years off, if it happens at all. Lots of scientists are discussing the ethical, ecological, and social issues that come along with this technology. Back in June in 2016, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine Committee released their recommendations for responsible conduct of researchers, funding agencies, and regulators. Geneticists Like Dr. Anthony James, one of the lead investigators in the gene drive research that we were just discussing, have requested that policymakers create regulations of this technology so that the control moves out of the hands of scientists and into the hands of those elected by the public. Dr. James, like many scientists, including myself, feel that scientists should wait for the public to welcome new biotechnologies. This welcoming comes from public desire for the technology, so it must have a great benefit, such as the eradication of a serious disease, knowledge of the implications of the drives that are being released, and regulations against misuse. The research into even accidental release has already begun, using mathematical models and sophisticated computer programs. Producing as much information as possible to the public, regulators, and ethicists will hopefully ensure that the future decisions made about gene drive technology are the ones that are right for our future. In the next episode, we are going to cover a very broad topic, but one that concerns a lot of people. As travel becomes more accessible, Many people all over the world are becoming more keenly aware of the possible dangers they are flying into. Sharon McGrew asked if I could, quote, talk about hazards and precautions of going to the Amazon. She posted this on the Tiny Vampires Facebook page. So if you want to hear what waits for you in the jungles of the Amazon, please be sure to subscribe or to check iTunes or Stitcher on the last Tuesday of April. I hope that you found and continue to find this podcast informative. Please visit my blog, tinyvampires.com, to see some very well-done CG videos of how CRISPR-Cas9 works. Also on the blog, a link for all of the papers and articles from journalists on the Gene Drive topic, as well as radio interviews with Dr. James. There are also show notes, music credits, and more. Please if you have any feedback at all I'd love to hear from you. Please rate and review Tiny Vampires on whatever platform you're listening on. If you have any arthropod or disease topics or questions you would like me to talk about or if you have corrections, please send them to hfo and the number 1 at nd like Notre Dame, dot edu, or post on the Tiny Vampire blog or Facebook page. Thank you for listening. From me, Raven Forrest Friscalto, PhD student at the University of Notre Dame, member of the Social Responsibilities of Researchers program and funded by the National Science Foundation.